You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to be um, looking at uh, the couple, a couple first verses of that. We are doing a, um, a series right now that we do at the beginning of every school year as um, uh, a way of reminder and introduction um, for us as we think about uh, life as the church. Who are we? What are we about? What is uh, the distinctive of um, Galena Bible Church? And um, the challenge that we have to uh, reassess uh, reevaluate, re um, uh, kind of look at um, what we're doing and why we're doing it. A number of years um, back, we uh, began just just ask the question: If we call ourselves Galena Bible Church, uh, that the Bible then becomes our governing document, our principal thing, and uh, how do we organize ourselves according to what um, Scripture teaches us and what it. Uh, tells us, and of course there's way more that we can talk about than what we can cram into one um, sermon, but this morning I want us to take a look at the concept of biblical leadership as it works, uh, as God has revealed it to work within the local church. How many of you would agree that uh, as a Western culture, uh, we are kind of at a crisis of leadership? Anybody agree with that concept? Um, that organizations, uh, regardless of whether they are religious or political uh, or, you know, in school settings or others, all of them are uh, uh, saying that they are having a challenge, a struggle of finding people that are willing to step into leadership roles. And in many cases, those that do step into leadership roles, be they uh, in the public sector or in the private sector, uh, sometimes even within the religious sector, uh, the individuals that are willing to step into those leadership roles are not qualified to step into those leadership roles. In other words, they have tendencies that are toxic. Uh, They have personalities uh, that cause great strife and great trouble in those uh, type of situations. And of course, the church is not immune to this. It's uh, not, um, you know, it's not but a couple weeks uh, every other week or so that you hear about some big name church leader or some religious organization uh, person that's had some major massive moral failing uh, or some kind of uh, thing comes up about this toxic environment. Um, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have been around um, uh, a church circle known as the Acts 29 Network, if you've read anything about that, but uh, the name Mark Driscoll might ring a, ring a bell to some folks. He had a uh, catastrophic uh, failure uh, in leadership. It wasn't necessarily that uh, it found out that he was sleeping with a secretary or was embezzling money or all this kind of stuff. It was just that what came out of this very prominent leader's life was that he created a toxic environment of uh, leadership by bully uh, and such that when he was removed from office, the, uh, he was a multi-campus uh, church that he oversaw, uh, the main campus collapsed where it, didn't, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, And so as we look at this concept of leadership, we as Christians, um, and specifically us as Galena Bible Church, want to turn into what does the scripture say about how we are to lead the church. We are a very, very small church. Uh, We don't have, you know, we we don't have massive organizational structures and big committees and all kinds of things because it's, it's just, it's just us, right? Like that's, that's what it is. Uh, So all the more for us to say, let's get what we do 
rights according to Scripture, and we press into that. And I think the challenge for us is that what the Scripture teaches about leadership, what biblical leadership is, is so absolutely counter-cultural, uh, counter-leadership stance-wise. Uh, if you go to Barnes & Noble and buy books on leadership of Fortune 500 companies, the people that are writing those books do not model what this type of stuff is. I remember a number of years back, uh, during what was called the church growth movement, in the United States, again, if you've just been in church, you, you probably weren't following any of this kind of stuff, but the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, there was a, an entire movement called the Church Growth Movement, and there were conferences and books and training seminars and things like that, and the whole point was grow the church, right, and get leaders in place in these channels and these avenues to get people, get butts in the seats. That was the, that was the ultimate goal. And the thing that we have discovered since uh, the uh, inception of that is what it did was it put up highly charismatic personalities as the primary quality of leadership. And it produced uh, a lot of converts, but it did not produce very many disciples. And if you're wondering what the difference between a convert and a disciple is, converts are those that when things get hard, they'll change their mind and go do something different. Disciples are those that when the Taliban comes and knocks at their door, they say, yes, with a glad heart, I love Jesus and I'm ready to see him. That's the distinct difference. And what uh, American Christianity has produced over the last 20 years is more converts than disciples, as is laid out. And a lot of this was uh, because of the result of the leadership models that were put forward. More Christian leaders were looking at guys like Steve Jobs than the Lord Jesus Christ and the way in which they were doing leadership. And so it created a culture that was not healthy and not good. We as Galena Bible Church uh, began to evaluate our leadership structure and uh, what we were doing. And what we realized is that uh, there were some things that the Bible talked about that weren't even on the radar of our church. It wasn't necessarily even a part of my upbringing, according to the denominational affiliation that I had. And so we began to uh, question how are we organized and how do we want to move forward? And one of the key texts um, for this is in 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, the Apostle Peter is writing to the universal church. He's not writing to a particular church. This is him writing to all the churches to be an encouragement to them, um, specifically the churches that were uh, predominantly individuals who had come out of a Jewish background into saving faith. So predominantly not Gentile uh, believers, but predominantly Jewish believers who had this kind of uh, mindset of this is how we, this is how church should work because this is how my experience of church should work uh, and their understanding of synagogues and those kind of things. Um, the, uh, I, so I grew up in a Southern Baptist background and there was a, in the uh, Southern Baptist Convention um, in 1954 was a million more in 54. The reason they had this, the phrase that was their, their like mission statement as a convention uh, was they were baptizing a million people a year in the United States. Now, again, think, 1954, our population was not over 300 million at that time. So that's, that's a monumental thing, right? 
But what happened is things were working so well in that cultural context. Remember, that's when Billy Graham Evangelist Association was blowing, going. Campus Crusade for Christ was just getting after it. Youth for Christ was getting after it. Young life was ramping up, reaching people. Uh, God was doing something incredible in that. And everybody was like, this is awesome. Let's keep doing this. And so into the 90s, there were church leaders that were going, hey, if 1958 ever comes around again, we're ready. Because that's what we're doing, right? And we don't want to do that. We don't want to say, how have we done it in the past as a church? We want to anchor ourselves to what Jesus has given to us in His revealed Word that is contrary. Every time we pour into Scripture, it rubs against our present expectations, the way that we feel like things ought to work. And they point to a better future than we could ever dream of. 1 Peter chapter 5 Uh, Peter uh, writes this. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Now, this is not elder in the village sense of older individual. These are church elders, religious elders. Sometimes the Bible uh, translates that word overseer. Uh, Occasionally, it translates it as pastor. Uh, Some older translations translate that as bishop. They're all the same word, uh, elder. So he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This exhortation to the, uh, what in modern day terms we would define as like the highest level of leadership uh, every organizational structure, except for the last couple years, I've been hearing, hearing these uh, rumblings within organizations where they're, they're uh, talking about pancake leadership. They want to try to you know, not be a pyramid scheme and get everything down uh, on the bottom. Uh, but for the most part, everybody looks at it as a pyramid, right? There's somebody that's at the top, and then they tell some people what to do, and then those people tell other people what to do, right? You got the, the, the five-star generals and the four-star generals telling the three-star generals, and on the way it down it goes in the organizational structure of it. And Paul is writing to these elders of the churches that are scattered about, uh, that God has birthed there. But he begins speaking to them in such a way as to remind them that their role is not that of the king over people, but as an under-shepherd of the king. 
a very different mindset. In fact, it's an interesting thing as we look at the, uh, uh, the pancake models of leadership that are being pushed right now, and we ask the question, where are those things coming from? And they're, they're actually all coming from a, a biblical model of understanding of the way that things work. The Bible gives for us two distinct offices within the church. Uh, Paul write, or, um, Peter writes here, Uh, to the churches at large, and he uses only one of those. He talks to the elders, and we ask the question, why? Why does he, if, and we'll we'll talk about the other one here in a second, but why is it that he only addresses the the elders as an office in in this situation? Well, again, remembering this is a message to the universal church. The church that exists everywhere. And I don't know if you've ever visited churches, but not, not all churches are the same. There's some churches that are brand spanking new. They literally uh, just birthed last week. And there's other churches that have people that were born in the church and, uh, and are buried in the church at 80. And they're in that same, their membership has been at that same church the entire time, right? And so when we think of churches along that, that uh, lineage of brand spanking new to very, very mature, uh, it's important for us to remember uh, that the, the growth process of those is very different. I don't have the same expectations of this brand new church as I do of a, uh, a very large and old and established kind of church. The simple expectation was that uh, elders had been appointed over these Churches. Now, this is a point to, to make that there is a distinction, a difference between just a group of believers and a church. They're not the same thing. A group of believers that are gathering in a living room for a Bible study is not, by its own definition, a, a church. There are things that Scripture bring out about the nature of a church that uh, it is the, the people are part of the church, but it itself as a local expression isn't it. And so as he writes this out, he explains that there, uh, these elders that are amongst, the, uh, amongst these churches, that every church has this office of elder. And we're going to look at what the qualifications of that are. The second one that's not listed in this passage is the, the, uh, the office of the deaconate. Now you remember from the, the book of Acts, uh, the church in Jerusalem, the, the first church, if you will, as it began to grow and the ministry needs began to grow, the, the apostles, those who had walked with Jesus, they're trying to lead people to Jesus. They're trying to preach. They're trying to minister in these kind of ways. And then there were things that began to happen that were such a drain on them that they could not do what they know that they needed to do. And so under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, they appointed what was called deacons. This position uh, was given a specific task, a ministry to uh, engage in, a ministry to own, something to, to do. The elders, again, were, their job was to oversee the church. The deacons had a specific focus uh, in what was uh, given to them. In 1 Timothy, I'll have to find it over here. Uh, in 1 Timothy, Chapter 3, Paul writes to young Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus, and he begins to talk about these. He's helping them flesh this out for them. He does the same thing for Titus on the island of Crete. 
there it's a difference because the, the church in Crete was very, very new, whereas the church in Ephesus had a couple years under its belt. So he has some nuances with those. But as he's writing to this, he wants them to understand the nature of overseers and deacons. And this is what he says. He says, it was a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, the office of elder, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must... Uh, also first be tested and then let them serve as a deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. These two offices that he lays out for us, he gives a job description, if you will, but the job description is vastly different than the type of job description that we write for individuals, right? We asked the question, we brought Ross Kinsey on as our youth pastor here this last year. Of course, one of the first questions he asked was, so what is entitled to the job? And we had to write a job description because he's going to be bivocational. And so what does that look like time management wise? And what are the expectations and all of those kind of things? The reality of scripture, though, is that when we put forward leadership, the first difference between biblical leadership and uh, and worldly leadership is that the Bible values character before competency. It values character before competency. As you look through that list of what, is the, what are the elders to be like and what are the deacons to be like, the defining things about it are not how good are they at anything. In fact, of the elders, the only thing that is an actual competency thing that it gives them, or uh, the ability that it gives them, is it says that they are able to teach. Everything else is based upon their character, who they are as a follower of Jesus. And we ask that question, why? Why, is, why does the Bible put so much emphasis <clears throat> on character before competency. And it's because character is eternal. And competency is, you can fake that. See, this is the reality of how Jesus called his disciples. I love it because it's, Jesus didn't call amazing church planters. He called knuckleheads. 
I mean, that's, that's basically what Jesus calls them when he says, Oh, you of little faith, right? Don't you understand? Have you been with me this whole time and you still don't get it? Their competency was very low. And as we look at aspects of their life, we might even say that their character is low, but God does not judge the outer man. He judges the inner man. And for that, we are greatly thankful. Jesus always values character before competency because the admonition to the elders specifically was he, he, he charged them to shepherd the flock of God, not that you are over, but that are among you. Jesus uses a pastoral type of image, a shepherd out with sheep. Shepherds didn't shepherd from an office. They didn't shepherd from in town and just kind of peer out and look at how the sheep were. They were in the midst of it. If the sheep were getting rained on, guess who else was getting rained on? If the sheep were hot, guess who else was hot? If there were uh, wolves that were coming around the sheep herd, guess who else was in the midst of the danger of that? They were in the midst of it. They were with them. And the picture of biblical leadership is not one that says, I stand off and I tell the peons what to do. It is to say, I am with you. I'm in the midst of it. It's one of the reasons why when I communicate with churches that talk about wanting to do church planting efforts, mission efforts into rural Alaska, the first thing they say is, well, what do you, you know, what do you, Chris, what do you think the most important thing that we can do is? I say, find somebody to move there. They don't like that very much. Because that's very costly. It costs a person's life to do that. It's a whole lot easier to say, well, no, 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 can't we just like pipe in a live stream? Can't we just send some DVDs? You know, can't we send an occasional thing? And going, I mean, you can do that. But it's not going to bear any fruit. Because you're not going to have anybody with them in the midst of it. Walking alongside. The Bible values character well before competency. And the interesting part about this, uh, this passage, and a thing that, that pressed against me a number of years back, um, somebody asked me the question, they said, why is it in that, that uh, first Peter passage, you know, it talks about the, the elders, the overseer, and, and in typical churches, again, the challenge that we have with this is we have, we have kind of an image in my, our mind of the type of church that we grew up in, and so we define what we think of that, right? Uh, so they say, okay, the, the, the elder, right, we'll, we'll just call that a normal church, we'll call that the pastor. Uh, it says they are to be the husband of one wife, right? And so there's that. And all about their, their character and their definition. But then when you get to deacons, some of your translations may have read something, something different. And it says it talks about deacons and that. And then the gender changes. What does anybody say different? than Mine said women. What, is your, what did yours say? Anybody say? The, yeah, the deacons' wives, right? And then it goes on to some other things. And they asked the question, they said, why are there character requirements for the wives of deacons, but not character requirements for the wives of the elder? And I went, that's an interesting point. And so as I began to press into that, I discovered something. Now, depending on what your translation of the Bible is, you guys know that, it, I'm jumping all over the place, you know that there are different ways in which we translate the Bible. There's what is called a thought-for-thought thought translations and word-for-word word translations. Thought-for-thought thought translations are trying to take Greek phrases that don't, if you just 
read it out as it is. It doesn't translate well into English, and so we're just kind of like, what in the world does that mean? So they're trying to capture the idea, the thought behind it as they translate it. Word-for-word translations try to, as best as they can, uh, enumerate what the word itself actually means as it translates over and then trying to deal with the, the nature of that. And the reason for the confusion is the word is not, the actual word is not the wife of a deacon. The word is very often just simply used as women. And in many cases would have been associated in marriage to the one talking about it beforehand. But the picture that is painted here is the feminine form of the deacon word. The early church was full of godly women who were deaconesses of the church. The eldership, according to Scripture, and as best as we've been able to wrestle it out, was God's plan that it would be men that would lead, in the same way that men are called to lead their families, that men would lead the church, that we would be the, uh, the overseers in that, leading the charge, taking the brunt of spiritual warfare that is taking place in that. But when it comes to the leadership office of the ministers within the church, those that do the work of ministry, so overseers lead the work of ministry, Deacons do the work of ministry, or lead, uh, facilitate the work of ministry, and members within the church body own ministry for themselves. And so we began to look at that and realize that, again, God is more concerned about character than He is about competency. He's more concerned about who you are when nobody else is looking than who you are when everybody's looking. And we value people more on what they do when everybody's looking versus who they truly are when they're off by themselves. The second thing that was countercultural in the way in which uh, the Bible talks about leadership is that uh, the, these offices of leadership were to be function before office. Function before office. Uh, Paul writes, if any man desires the office of overseer, what he desires is a noble thing. He's telling us that there is a, a position that you step into. Not all of us get to be, praise God, the uh, superintendent of the Galena City School District. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that Jim wants that position, let alone anybody else that's in the room, right? But that's one office, one position, uh, and you can, um, uh, you, know, you can vie for that position, but you don't get to get in it unless somebody gives you that office, right? Eldership and the deaconate are the same way. They're an office within the church. But the thing that is interesting about because character is more important than competency, it's not that you're given the office and then you rise up to meet the character nature of it. It's that you are functioning as that before the office ever comes. It's, it's actually the acknowledgement of the church of looking at an individual and saying, you know what, they're already actually shepherding people. They're already leading ministry. They're already sharing their faith. They're already trying to organize Bible studies. They're already doing these things. It's just simply an acknowledgement of the fact of going, this brother or sister has engaged in the work of ministry. I remember when I was early as a, early as a pastor, I think I was telling the Alabama team, uh, I became a lead pastor of a church when I was 23, which is nuts. That is, I don't, that is nuts. Um, but the weird part about that is the guy that was the lead pastor of the church, when I was a youth pastor, I became the lead pastor, and he took a denominational job, but he stayed at the church. 
And so what that meant was for the first year after I was the lead pastor making all the decisions, I was taking the brunt of all the stuff, I would still occasionally be referred to by members of the church as the associate pastor. And I was just, I remember being so frustrated. And my dad uh, sat me down at one point in time and he said, Chris, do the job. And when the title comes, there will be no difference. What a different way to think about leadership. That oftentimes we are looking at, even whether it's in our work environment or even in our home environment or our church environment, we're kind of looking for things that we can add to our resume, right? You only get to add titles to your resume. You only get to add certifications to your resume, right? We want to be able to prove that we've done something. One of my greatest leadership lines uh, that I've heard from a number of leaders was this. They said, you can accomplish anything that you want to accomplish so long as you don't care who gets the credit for it. This was about function before office. And we see that in the sense that Paul, or that uh, Peter, as he begins this exhortation to the elders, he began the letter by emphasizing, I'm, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus, sent by him to start the church, to plant churches. But then when he speaks to these elders, he doesn't begin by saying, I, the, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to you, the little elders of the church. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Yes, I'm doing things that are big because of who I am, but I'm also doing the exact same things that you are. I am walking in the function before the office. The third thing is it is the emphasis of you before me. Biblical leadership is you before me. Uh, as he exhorts this church, these these. Um, uh, these elders and encourages them to shepherd the flock that is among them, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. In other words, don't feel like you're being bullied to do this or burdened to do this. I have known some church leaders that felt like, well, nobody else is doing it, so I'm doing it. And then just saying, I just wanted to say, well, then don't. Just don't. I think with your attitude as it is right now, the church is actually going to be better. If you just don't, just let the church be the church. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. There are a number of uh, uh, Christian leaders around us. Um, some are prominent. They write books. They have conferences. Uh, it is the, the, um, one of the main exports of Western Christianity to the majority world church. This concept of... Um, the faith movement or prosperity gospel. And it is ultimately this. If I get a bigger group, I get to fleece more sheep. And it's satanic. It has nothing to do with biblical leadership. And then he says, Likewise to the younger men, subject yourselves, submit to the elders, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, and the, the word that's used there actually ties the first part of elders and those that are not elders together, saying, submit yourselves to each other, be humble towards each other. Why is that? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
A biblical understanding of community, as in leadership, can be seen in the Godhead himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. It's the most confusing theological stand. Any, any, uh, you, know, you guys have heard like, you know, the Trinity's like an egg, or the Trinity's like water, or those kind of, those are all literal heresies. Just, just so you know, those, those are not, it's just a mystery. But what's not a mystery is how the Trinity engages in leadership within itself. The Bible gives us a very clear understanding that within the Godhead, there are clear roles. Meaning, the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. That's what makes them distinct persons. And in that role, they have distinct responsibility that the other parts don't have. It wasn't the father that was going to come down and die on a cross. That was from eternity past the role and the responsibility of the son. That Mary was going to uh, give birth to Jesus was the role and responsibility of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, it is to your benefit that I leave because if I don't leave, then the helper can't come. The Holy Spirit can't come. There's a distinct responsibility in that distinct role. And when we think about that, and we think about the fact that God the Father has a distinct role, the Son has a distinct role, the Holy Spirit has a distinct role, do you ever think that either any of them are ever jealous of the role that the other one has? No. Not at all. Why is that? Because what we see within the Godhead in their distinct role and responsibility is perfect communication. That's why Jesus climbs up on a mountaintop and prays to his heavenly father. I mean, he's God in the flesh. Why in the world does he have to take time out of his day, climb up on a mountain and spend time in prayer? Why does he have to uh, encourage the disciples? Hey, spend this night praying with me. I mean, you're God. You know all things, right? How many stories is Jesus in the place? And it says, basically, Jesus knew what they were thinking and he responded. Like he knows all those things. Why does he do that? Because there's perfect communication. And that communication happens within the context of their role and responsibility. Jesus knew that the Father is the Father, and He's not. And He needs to commune with the Father. He needs to, I can do nothing of my own will, but only of the will of Him who sent me. But do you know what's crazy out of that? We just used a word that nobody likes in our present day context. Submit. Anybody ever like to be told, hey, submit. Just do it. Submit. Nobody likes that term. Did you know that God submits to God? I can do nothing of my own will, but only of, according to the will of Him who sent me. That is God the Son, the one that says He formed all things, submitting to the Father. God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. What? You mean biblical leadership actually involves submission? Yeah. You know what else is crazy? Matthew 28, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been what? Given to me. You know what he's saying? 
the Father submitting to me in this. Does that blow your mind? Is that not crazy? That the, the Spirit only does according to what is Jesus' will, that God will never conflict with God? Why is that? Because they understand their role, their responsibility. There's perfect communication and submission that is taking place. And this is in eternity past. And it's still the way that God works. What does that produce? It produces unity. It's why we, when we say the word Trinity, it is tri-unity. It is God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony together. Perfect unity. I know that we as a church, we long for that. We as a nation, we long for that. We get really frustrated when churches can't get along. We get really angry in those things. But what if we had perfect unity? But we didn't have love. This was the devotion this morning. It was about loving, loving people. Because everybody can strive for unity. But not everybody can strive for intimacy. The reason that Scripture says God is love. It's because God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all function perfectly in their role, fulfilling their responsibilities, communicate with each other, submit to each other uh, when and why, according to their role and responsibility, are united together. And that produces an incredible love. This is the picture of what church leadership is called to be for us. That as Martin or myself, as your elders of this church, it's not that we are lording it over you. I pray that you never at any point in time feel like, well, Chris is just kind of, you know, making it happen. That I'm in the midst of it. I'm with you. I'm for you in this. We've been talking to Ross. We brought Ross on as a deacon of our church in the form of, a, of our youth pastor that his scope of ministry was narrow in that sense. He's expressed a desire to step beyond that role uh, still continue to do youth ministry as we step into that, but looking at what does it mean to actually be an overseer in the church and having a, a greater responsibility in that. We're going to be looking at that uh, with him over the next couple of months. And we desire that God would raise up other people that would burden your heart for specific aspects of ministry. That you would say, I, I believe this is what I'm supposed to do, and I want to oversee that, and we want to be a part of that. One other thing I encourage uh, all men that are in the church, regardless if you ever desire the office of overseer, desire to meet the qualifications. Men and women, if you look at what it is that is painted out for it, don't, don't we want to have a good reputation in the community? Don't we want to be known as people who do not lust after greedy things? Don't we want to be people that aren't known as just drunkards? Don't we want to be known as people that are trustworthy? Don't we want to be known as people that lead our households well? And as we press into those things and ask the Holy Spirit to help us, the role of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus has given it to us, is that His responsibility is to convict us of sin, lead us in righteousness, and remind us the same thing that the Apostle um, uh, Peter saw as he began this, of saying, I exhort you, uh, the elders among you, as your fellow elder, witness of the sufferings of Jesus. He saw the life of Jesus and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. You know, the hope of the church was not the rapture. The hope of the church was the second coming of Christ. 
when He comes to rule and reign upon this earth, when He comes to make all things new, that is the, the hope of the glory that is to be revealed. And so this is the final dynamic of, uh, of a different view of biblical leadership that is distinct from every other leadership. And no other leadership can actually have this functioning in it because it is the view of Christ before authority. We so often want to make a difference, right? Right? And so we step into positions of authority and step into positions of leadership because we want to make a difference. But one thing we need to be reminded of is that in our biblical role of leadership as Christians, whether you are a Christian leader in your workplace, in your home, or in the church, it always begins with Christ before authority. That there's coming a day, uh, the Scriptures tell us, where Afghanistan will look like, or where America will look like Afghanistan. The, the, uh, Shell and I listened to a podcast this week by one of the underground uh, church leaders. They just identified him as Pastor X. He, um, by our best guess, he's serving somewhere in Iran, but he oversees a church network uh, in that region. And he was just describing literally what is happening right now. And it was as if Jesus was just simply saying, Pray that the persecution won't come in wilderness. And as you run off to the hills, pray for those that are, or woe to those who are pregnant and those kind of things. It was, it was that. Jesus, of course, was talking about Jerusalem in his day when Rome was going to sack Jerusalem and burn it to the ground. But it was the same picture that's painted there. And it was a reminder for me of going, you know, it's crazy. Um, because it could be the same here. It probably won't look the same. But we have to ask the question ultimately, do I care more about making a difference or do I care more about Jesus? Because oftentimes if we're going to make a difference in this world, by our standards, we end up compromising. We care more about authority. We care more about leadership. We care more about titles than we do about just simple obedience to Jesus. Do we really care what the world thinks about us or ultimately what Jesus thinks about us? If we're honest, most of us care more about what people locally think about us. So we're willing to compromise, we're willing to bend, we're willing to step away from the things of Jesus. And one of the hardest places for me to ever minister was in the Bible Belt. It was so stinking hard. Everybody thought they were saved, right? They've been saved since they were born. They were born saved, right? They were born in the baptistry. And realizing the reality that God has no grandchildren, that the assumptions that were in place, the deficits that were in place, the reality that many pastors in the West have never been discipled themselves. They've never been disciples themselves. They've been educated. They, they express some form of, uh, I love Jesus and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more excited about church than the average person in the church. And people are like, awesome, great, you should go to seminary. Okay? So they go to seminary undiscipled and their method of 
learning, discipling was instruction. And so what do they do? They go back to their churches and they think discipleship is just a transfer of information. One Bible study, one sermon series to the next. Rather than shepherd the flock of God among them. <clears throat> Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's ultimately the charge of you and me. The desire of you and me is to stand before our Father and not have Him say, well done, good and successful servant. That's what most leadership tries to teach us. This is well done, good and faithful. Faithful. A crown of glory that is unfading. Why? Because we've looked to Jesus. Do we claim that we've done this perfectly? Absolutely not. Do we claim that we're uh, still in the place of trying to figure this out? Absolutely. But you can rest assured in this, that we're not going to look to the world's models of leadership as our ultimate example. We're going to press in as a church to what it is that Jesus teaches us so that we can be Jesus people, that we can be Bible people, that we can value leadership that actually does lead to transformation rather than just the transfer of information. We desire to see God change our lives first and then the lives of the people that we touch everywhere we go. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is true and right. Um, God, help us in this. We as a church are uh, in, a, in a place of coming out of a couple of years of great loss, of just uh, faithful parts of our church that have moved on to other locations. And we're, we're so grateful for them and we're grateful for their ministry and we're grateful for uh, the churches that they're now a part of that are flourishing. God, we, as we think about the, the church body as a physical body, oftentimes, God, uh, when people leave, it's more like having a finger mashed off than having a kidney transplant. It's just painful and marring and hurtful. Lord, we know that we're a transient church. We know that we're a church filled with people that uh, are here one year and gone the next. And so, Lord, let us be a church that is willing to be a transplant church. Receiving in brothers and sisters of Christ, growing them up in strength and sending them out for the purposes that you have for them, that they would be richly blessed in that. God, we do pray that you would raise up leaders within our church. Men who love you. Women who are passionate for you. People who love your word and want to grow in those strengths. And God, give us eyes to see uh, the ways in which we need to serve each other as a body and reach out to our community and the surrounding area for your good purposes. We're so grateful, God, that you have not left us alone, but you've given us the Holy Spirit to walk in uh, the role of being our chief advocate, bringing Scripture to mind, leading us in truth. God, help us to walk in obedience to all that you have given us in your word. We love you. It's your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.